We're in our series on the life of Jesus. And there's nothing else I would rather study than Jesus. There's no more rewarding pursuit than Jesus. And we're going to pick up our story the literal day after the study we did last week. If you remember what happened last week, it was an action-packed Sabbath day for Jesus. It's the Sabbath, which was a Saturday. So Jesus went into the synagogue in the city that he's living in right now called Capernaum. He taught. It says the people were astonished by the authority he had. As an encore, a demon-possessed man shows up in the synagogue. Jesus casts the demon out. People have never seen anything like this. They're blown away. Goes to eat lunch, and over lunch, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, from a near-death fever, Jesus' renown had spread through the area, and when the sun had set, the Sabbath was over. People were allowed to travel, and so they flocked to him, and Jesus healed more people, cast more demons out of people who were possessed, and delivered more people. It was a big day. And so we pick up our study the day after that. It's Sunday morning, and let's see what happens. We're going to be starting in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And it says this, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. This is the first time that the Gospels point to Peter becoming a leader among the disciples. He's mentioned by name. His name is Simon at this point, but it will become Peter later on. And those who were with him are not mentioned, but they're probably Andrew, James, and John. And they were literally looking for Jesus, trying to find him, because they were so excited about the events of the day before. They were so excited about the events of the day before. They were thinking, you know what, Jesus, you finally got it. You got the big mo. You've got momentum going in your ministry. Everybody's talking about you. We need to get you back into Capernaum, get back to ministering so we can capitalize on what's going on because this is the time to strike while the iron is hot. Everything's taking off. But where's Jesus? It says, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place And there he prayed. You know, Jesus is doing the exact opposite of what I would do, if I'm honest. After a a big, successful day of ministry, I would probably just take it easy. Because deep down, like many of you, I often consider my relationship with God to be more work than I really should. And I would tell myself, you know, I, I I deserve to sleep in today. I've, I mean, I've checked the God box times 10, so I'm sure God is cool with me sleeping in today. But Jesus makes absolutely no connection between what's going on in his life and his relationship with the Father. He felt the need to be in fellowship with the Father, whether he had had an amazing yesterday or a terrible yesterday. It was the relationship that he valued more than any other. He wasn't in relationship with the Father because he needed to get things done or because he needed to check a box or he's undertaking some venture and he's saying, just want to make sure I'm blessed before I do this. Cool? Okay, good. He's in relationship with the Father because he loved the Father. That's that's it. That's all he was looking to get out of it was the relationship with the Father. And everything Jesus did and said flowed out of that. Jesus embodied the idea that if we focus on seeking the Lord, everything else will be taken care of. That's how Jesus told us we should live too. You've heard the passage of scripture probably before where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus didn't just preach that. He he lived it. He focused on one thing, his relationship with the Father, believed out of that everything would get taken care of. The challenge for us is this. It's the first fill-in on your outline. Everything in the Christian life, everything in the Christian life flows out of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Flows out of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We've talked before about how important it is to make note of the habits of Jesus. Not just the things he said, but the things that were a part of his daily or near daily routine in life. And this is one of them. Rising early to be with the Father. You and I, let me be blunt, we need to be like Jesus in this area. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. I'm not a morning person, 
can I get a witness? Okay, but here's the bottom line. That's irrelevant. It's, it's irrelevant. Because even I am aware that it would be kind of pathetic to stand in front of Jesus and say, you know, I, I see what you're doing. Here's the thing, Jesus. I'm not, re- I'm not really a morning person. I can't really imagine Jesus going, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't understand that. If I'd known that, I, I never would have asked you to rise early to meet with me. Sorry, I didn't know you weren't, you weren't a morning person. You know, I was saved to become more like Jesus, not more like myself. And the same is true for you. It's true. In Isaiah 50, we find a messianic prophecy. That means that it's a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah, written hundreds of years before he arrived in human form on the earth. And it says this. Isaiah 50 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. And all that's saying is it's describing what Jesus is going to be like, that he's going to rise early in the morning and he's going to know just what to say at just the right time as though he's the smartest man alive, but it's not going to be because he's the smartest man alive. It's going to be because the Holy Spirit has such a grip on him that everything he says comes from him. I was talking about, it, about this this week with a friend, how amazing it is that Jesus is so in tune with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Everything he says is exactly what God wants him to say. He doesn't say a word, the Bible says, that the Father doesn't want him to say. He's, he's that in tune with God. It's staggering. And I find it sobering that while I profess a longing to be like Jesus, I am so resistant to living like Jesus. I'm so resistant to it. If we want to start becoming more like Jesus, this, this is where we start. Rising early to pray and be with our Heavenly Father for the relationship. Not even just rising with a list of, okay, God, here's, here's a list of things I need to cover. Okay, done. But a relationship, a conversation, talking and listening, starting your day that way. Let's continue in verse 37. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. This absolutely blows my mind. Jesus is applying seemingly zero ministry strategy right here. None at all. I mean, this would be like us showing up here on a Sunday. It's just like any other Sunday but there's 300 people here for some reason. We've, we've got all the doors open. There's people going out the stairs. We have to open the windows. There's people standing outside talking. Monday morning, you get an email from me saying, you know what? I think we're just going to take next Sunday off. Just see what happens. I'm going to go hang with a friend who needs to hear the gospel. It would be like that. You'll be thinking, are you, are you out of your mind? Like, isn't this what you, we've all been praying for and waiting for? And Jesus does something that is so unusual. Write this down. This blows my mind. Jesus doesn't minister based on people's needs. He ministers based on obedience to the Father. Did you catch that? Jesus doesn't minister based on people's needs. So he doesn't look around and say, there's still more here in Capernaum that need to hear this. They're hungry for more teaching. There's more healing that needs to be done. That's not how he makes his decisions. He makes his decisions on one criteria, obedience to the Father. What does the Father want me to do? He doesn't think back and say, whoa, 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 I'll do the job of God. I'll decide what everybody needs and how they need to be reached. Instead, he says, you know what? The Father knows everything. He sees everything. He's got this covered. The only thing I'm responsible for is making sure that I'm doing my part. And I can only do my part if I know what my part is is that's the approach that jesus takes and guess what the father wants him to move on from this resounding success in capernaum and minister in other villages around galilee and jesus says so so that's what we're going to do the theme of obeying the word of the lord is going to be key to our study today so take note of this simple principle but a huge principle if we want to hear from god we need to give him opportunities to speak if we want to hear from God, we need to give him opportunities to speak. You ever done this? I just feel, I just feel like I can't hear God. When's the last time you listened? I don't think that's connected. <laughs> you know? 
I shout at him on a regular basis and complain, and, and then, do you listen? No, no. But I know he hears me, but I can't hear him for some reason. It's like, this is because we never shut up, and we never give him a chance to speak. We never listen. Jesus begins every day by listening. By listening. What do you, what do you want me to do today, Father? Verse 39, it says, And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing all kinds of sickness and disease among the people. And we see that Jesus goes throughout all Galilee. Remember we said Capernaum is kind of like a hub in this northern region of Israel called Galilee. And so it means this ministry tour that Jesus is on would have gone on for weeks, possibly even months. And as a result, in Matthew's gospel, it says his fame went throughout all Syria. And Syria is just the region immediately to the north of Israel. You know, it's a reasonable question to ask, why don't we see these kinds of things happening today? Why don't we see demons cast out all the time and and sickness dramatically healed all the time? You, You might have had this thought before. And we see some of it, but if we're honest, we, we don't see anywhere in the world any believers doing this with the consistency and the frequency that Jesus did it with. When I say consistency, I mean when Jesus prayed for you to get healed, it wasn't like it was going to happen. It was going to happen. He batted 1,000. 10 for 10, 100 for 100, perfect percentage. He was never like, huh, all right, guess it didn't work out. Every single time. Well, we don't, we don't see that. And, and so why is that? I think we should see more. And some of that probably has to do with our faith, if we're honest. But we also need to remember that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So what Jesus is preaching is the king is here. I'm the king. The king is here. The kingdom of God is here. And this is what the kingdom looks like. It, it's demons driven out. Disease completely vanquished. The blind seeing. That's the kingdom. But ultimately... They, just as we would have if we were there, they rejected the kingdom of God at that time. They rejected the rule and reign of Jesus. They said, no, thank you, and they crucified him. But when Jesus comes back the second time, sickness and disease are going to be beaten back forever. Demons will no longer have any power. And and in his first coming, Jesus gave us sort of a sneak preview of coming attractions. And this is where we get confused. We think that because Jesus did that right now, every person should now be healed of every disease and every problem should be removed. But we forget. That's the kingdom of God that was rejected by man. And so we'll see previews of that every now and then. But we really won't see the kingdom until Jesus returns in the second coming to establish what he says will be his kingdom on the earth. And he will reign, and he will rule, and he will bind the powers of darkness, and he will heal every sick person and every infirmity and every disease. We're not going to see anything quite like this until Jesus brings the literal kingdom to earth again. We're going to shift gears now and and move to the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 5. You might want to turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. It's the same story, the same day continuing. And it says, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gesenaret. The lake of Gesenaret is just a name for the Sea of Galilee. It's sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias. And and Capernaum, where Jesus is based, is one of the towns that's on the shore of this low-lying lake that we talk about. It says in verse 2, And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. So these fishermen, they had fished all night. They had caught nothing. They were mending their nets, and they were drying their nets to get ready for another night of work. And they fished in the night because it was only during the night that the fish came to a shallow enough part of the lake to be caught. These weren't deep sea trawlers. These were men with hand nets and they needed the fish to be shallow enough to get access to them. During the day, the fish would migrate to a deeper part of the lake to get away from things like birds and other animals that would eat them because they could see them in the sunlight. So they had to fish during the night. 
And the boats that they're using are, are probably bigger than most of the boats that you see in children's Bibles. The, the ones I see in my kids' Bibles are always like as long as a row of seats, and they've got six guys squashed in there. Uh, these boats, uh, archaeology tells us, were probably about 27 feet long, probably about seven and a half feet wide. So they're, they're pretty sizable. And in verse 10, we're going to find out that these fishermen are, are Peter, his brother Andrew, and then another set of brothers, James and John, and they were all partners together in a fishing business. It says this in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, then he got into one of the boats. He's got a bunch of people following him right now, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. So the idea is people are following him. They want to know what he's going to do next, what he's going to say. So he hops in Simon Peter's boat, pulls the boat out a little from the shore so that he can now see and speak to a large group of people and everyone can hear him. Peter's probably in the boat with Jesus. He'd be helping to, to, to steady it, just be there with him. It's his boat. And it's interesting how God works this out because whatever Jesus is teaching on, Peter probably really, really needs to hear it. He needs to hear it. So God orchestrates events so that Peter has his ear right next to Jesus as he teaches this. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations that, that we don't understand, but it's because God has put us there. And I wanted to share this at this point. As I was just thinking about this and studying, I thought about how many things there are in life where we never stop and ask the question, where does God want me to be? Where does God want me to be? I'll give you the, mo- the most prime example. If you talk to an average Christian and say, you know, where do you go to church? And they'll tell you and you say, why do you go there? You almost never hear anybody in any of the reasons say, man, we, we just feel like God has called us to be there. That's usually the reason you never hear anybody say when it should be the primary reason. When we ask, when, wh- where are you working right now? Where do you want to work in five years? Why? We rarely hear the reason. I just believe this is where God wants me to be. He has me here. I don't know everything about why, but I know this is where God wants me to be. And I think if we're honest, some of us are, are troubled with anxiety because we don't feel like we can say we know we are where God wants us to be. And I want to encourage you, take that to the Lord. Because when you know that you're where God wants you to be, there's a peace that comes with that that is priceless. When you make the biggest decisions in your life based on simple math because everything adds up, you run into problems when the math doesn't add up. But when you know without a doubt you're where God wants you to be, that's priceless. That's worth a lot. It'll carry you through a lot. In verse 4 it says this, When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Knowing what we know now about fishing, this would appear to be the worst fishing advice in the world. Peter, I'm sure, was probably thinking, Jesus, you're you're a little carried away. I know you've just taught. You're a little excited. Holy Ghost is flowing. You don't know jack about fishing, Jesus. You have no idea what you're talking about. In in his head, Peter's just probably thinking, Jesus is like, go out into the deep and cast your nets. God will move. Peter's like, Jesus, Jesus, you're, you're a great teacher. You're a terrible, terrible fisherman. In verse five, it says this. This is profound. And you're gonna wanna underline something here. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, We have toiled all night and caught nothing. And then underline this phrase. Nevertheless, at your word. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. That phrase, nevertheless, at your word, is powerful because Peter is modeling plainly for us what real faith looks like. You know, faith is one of the biggest aspects of the Christian life and it's one of the biggest aspects we're great at messing up as the church. You know, in the Christian faith, we have one extreme. You can turn on the TV and you sort of have the word faith movement. These are the guys who tell you, listen, all you need to do is name it and claim it in Jesus' name. Put your hand on that car. Claim it in Jesus' name. You need to receive it. Hallelujah. You know, people put their hands on the TV and things like that. If you don't get it, it's just because you didn't have enough faith. Name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel. And if you've met someone in this camp, you know that they can appear borderline delusional. That's the one extreme. And then we have the other side. We have like the poverty gospel, which is like there's, there's no need for faith because God is sovereign over everything. And if you're going through hard times, it's because God wants you to suffer because uh, being miserable is good for you. Right? 
And the problem with that is that God is the model father. He's the good father. I am not a better father than God. And I have never looked at my children and said, listen, you know know what I want for you in this life? I want some good old-fashioned misery and suffering and hardship because it will make you a good person. The more, the better. That's what I want for you, son. I love you. I've never done that because I would be a terrible father because I know you don't really have to will that. It just sort of happens on its own, right? It just will. You don't need to wish for it. You don't need to pray for it. And that's the other extreme of this faith thing. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't please him without faith. And that's why I love Peter's response. It's so balanced. Notice this. We're going to fill some things in on our outlines. Number one, Peter doesn't deny the reality of the situation. He doesn't deny the reality of the situation. When he says, you know, we fished all night, Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. I don't receive that. You have not tried. Your nets are already full. Hallelujah. He doesn't say, don't speak. He said, of course, this is what really happened. Peter acknowledges, we fished all night. We're professionals. We know what we're doing. It's the wrong time of day to fish right now. He understands what Jesus is asking doesn't make sense. It defies the laws of logic. And Peter doesn't deny any of that. He doesn't delude himself into obeying God. Secondly, write this down. Peter acknowledges that a direct word from Jesus overrides all other factors. A direct word from Jesus overrides all of the factors. He acknowledges the reality of the situation, but he also acknowledges the ultimate reality, that Jesus has spoken and his authority supersedes all other realities. That's the problem in the Christian life is sometimes it's easy to be a realist or tell yourself you're being a realist, saying, man, I'm just being realistic. But the problem is we're not very good at being realistic with God and realizing who he really is and what he has the power to do. And anytime somebody tried to be a realist with God in the Bible, God would always respond with something like, is, is my arm too short? Is this too difficult for me to do this? Do I lack the resources? Do I lack the power to follow through on what I've said? And what God is saying is he's saying, I, I, I would like you to just be a realist with me as well because I'm God. What I'm telling you is not crazy. It's completely within my ability to make happen. And then write this down thirdly. Peter obeys in faith against logic the word that Jesus had spoken. Peter doesn't invent a word that Jesus has spoken. Peter acknowledges that Jesus has spoken. And then he exercises faith by obeying the word of Jesus. So here's where we get it wrong. We act on a word that Jesus hasn't spoken. And then we wonder why it doesn't work out. We ignore the word that Jesus has spoken and wonder why it doesn't work out. But we fail to act on the words that Jesus has spoken. And if we would, it would work out. It really would. Peter's the example. He acknowledges the reality of the situation. He acknowledges the authority of Jesus over all those things. And then he obeys in faith. That's what it looks like to live by faith. Every week, God's word speaks to us as we gather as the church, and every day, his word will speak to you if you study it for yourself. The question we should always be asking after reading God's word is this, if I believe this is true, what should my life look like? If I believe this is true, what should my life look like? It's the key to everything. And I've said this before, if Jesus has a love language, it's obedience. It's obedience. He said it plainly. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Other places, Jesus says, why do you say you love me? You don't don't even do the things I ask you to do. Don't tell me you love me. You completely ignore what I say. And that's what Jesus receives from us as love, is obedience. Often in my own life, and I think we all do this, we fail to obey and instead live as though we can substitute another activity in place of the one that God has asked us to do. Imagine if Peter, when Jesus said, cast your nets into the lake, if Peter had said, you know, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go buy a loaf of bread, and I'm going to go give it to that homeless guy over there. I'm going to do that. What would Jesus' response have been? It would have been, you know, that 
that's great, Peter, but, but that's not what I asked you to do. It's not what I asked you to do. It's not a point system where we can just say, well, I've read this command from God. That's a five-pointer, so let me see if I can find another five-pointer that sounds a little more attractive, and I'll just substitute. It doesn't work that way. But we do it all the time. Peter actually obeys the word of Jesus, and what happens? Verse 6, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And in my mind, I love to picture the expression on the face of Jesus. He's in the boat. He's probably just leaning against the side watching. And he just says, just throw your nets out. And he's watching, you know, I don't know if Peter's like rolling his eyes as he's doing this, you know, and he's thinking this is going to be so awkward when we pull nothing up. And then this happens. I just imagine Jesus sitting there and he had to be smiling and he had to be chuckling and he's just looking at him, just watching their amazement and their, their frantic nature as they pull this in and he's just sitting there smiling. It would be, be like the ultimate version of being a parent watching your kid open a present on Christmas and getting something amazing that they didn't see coming. I really think Jesus enjoyed doing this. In verse 8 it says, When Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Just as we saw last week here again, we see Peter being light years ahead of everybody else, all the other disciples, when it came to connecting the dots about Jesus. Last week we saw Peter move his whole business, his family, everything, his home from Bethsaida to Capernaum just to be where Jesus was. And this week, we see an amazing response from Peter. And I want to explain why his response is so profound. While everybody else is struggling with the nets, trying to get all the fish in they can, Peter drops what he's doing. And he falls on his knees before Jesus. And he cries out, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognizes that what's going on is far more profound and important than anything to do with fish. What's happened in a split second is that Peter, in his own mind, has logically followed the implications of what's just taken place all the way to their conclusion. The words that Peter speaks here are his conclusion after working through the whole process in his mind. Let me, let me try to unpack this more. The progression might have gone something like this in Peter's mind. Our nets are full of fish. This is, this is great news. Hang on, it's daytime. The fish shouldn't even be in this part of the lake right now. That's odd. Actually, it's not odd. It's miraculous. We only cast our nets out because Jesus told us to. How did he know that we would catch fish? Jesus must have the ability to make the miraculous happen because it, it just happened at his word. What kind of person has the ability to do that? Maybe a prophet, but... Jesus isn't claiming to be a prophet. He's claiming to be the Messiah, God in the flesh. And if he can make that claim and do these kinds of miracles and the other ones we've seen him do, then he must be who he says he is. And if he's the Messiah, then he's God. And if God is holy, I'm not holy. I'm a sinner. And it's not possible for me to be in the presence of a holy God. I'll be destroyed. I can't be here. My God, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's worked through all that in a split second, and I find this so moving because it's so profound. Peter has just lived out what it means to come to the realization that you need a Savior and have no hope at being at peace with God without a Savior. You're unable to fix the situation yourself. Peter's reaction is flawlessly logical. He's, He's overwhelmed with terror and fear because he understands that God is holy And he's honest enough with himself to know that he is not. And Peter is remembering verses from the Old Testament like this. It says in Exodus 20, Then they, the children of Israel, said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Exodus 33, but he, God, said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. Judges 13, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Job 42, Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Peter is not responding to a gospel that says, if you need a best friend, meet Jesus. The bestest friend of them all 
and he's here to cure your loneliness. Peter's response is born out of realizing that he is face to face with his maker and he is not prepared to meet him. He's terrified. Have you ever been honest with yourself about how desperate your need is for Jesus? How desperate your need is for a savior? And when you're honest with yourself, a casual response to the gospel is not possible. It's just not possible. And I believe that part of the reason Jesus gave us communion was for those moments that we're supposed to have as believers where we're just overwhelmed by our sinfulness and the gap between us and God that our sin has caused. And in those moments, we're able to take communion and be reminded, hey, the blood of Jesus really took care of that. It really is finished. It it really is done. I think part of the reason we're supposed to take communion is because we're supposed to need that assurance every now and then because we're supposed to be overwhelmed by how holy God really is. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. If I'm honest and I see this in my own life, we rarely consider the full implications of the gospel. We don't follow the process all the way to its logical conclusion. We're not honest enough with ourselves to reach the step where Jesus' authority supersedes all of the factors. We're not honest enough to follow the process where we reach the point of understanding we have no claim to ownership of our lives once we belong to Jesus. We don't have the right to say no to him. We don't have that right. We belong to him. We need to be honest enough to admit that the phrase no Lord is an oxymoron because you can't call him Lord and say no to him in the same breath. And if there's any area of my life or your life where we're walking in willful disobedience to God, it's because we've willingly chosen to not consider the implications of our faith. We've just forgotten we don't even own ourselves. We don't even belong to ourselves. That's the implication of our faith. That's the implication of salvation and of the gospel. Last week we pointed out how often Jesus began his teachings with the command, do not be deceived. He gave it as a command. And the warning in this area is don't don't deceive yourself. Don't lie to yourself about what it means to belong to Jesus. Don't lie to yourself. Jesus said, consider the cost of following me. He said, count the cost. Don't make a hasty decision so that we don't deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing it when we're really not. You know what I've learned about myself and about life is that when the cost of following Jesus seems high, when it seems like a burden, when it seems like a lot, it's only because I've forgotten what Jesus has done for me, if I'm honest. I've forgotten. I've forgotten. And I've begun to think that somehow what I'm doing is actually coming close to balancing the scales. That's what I've begun to believe. When I remember what Jesus has done for me, well then, if the cost of following Jesus is my life, it's still an exchange more ridiculously tilted in my favor than I could possibly express with words. It's ridiculously tilted in my favor. Whatever the cost is of following Jesus, it's nothing compared to what I've gained in him. Where I should have been judged and punished, I found grace and mercy and the hand of Almighty God lifting me up, calling me son. I I can't balance that out. Ever, ever. Verse nine, it says, for he and all who were with him, speaking of Peter, were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. Their fear is rooted in their understanding of their own sin and only Jesus can tell them, don't be afraid. No other person could tell them that because his fear was completely justified. But Jesus could say that because he knew he had come to give him a reason to not fear. And then Jesus prophesies that their future will be committed to the message of the gospel. That's what he's saying when he says, from now on you'll catch men. We saw in an earlier study that Jesus had already called these four men to follow him as disciples, to be their rabbi. And now we see Jesus calling them to partnership in the work of the gospel. He's calling them to partnership in the work of the gospel. 
Verse 11, it says, So when they had brought their boats to land, underline this, they forsook all and followed him. They forsook all and followed him. Here's what I love about their response. They're not just in it until Jesus solves their problem. They're having a bad work week. Income's low in the business. Jesus solves the problem. And if you've been around the church, any church for a period of time, I know you've seen people come and go. And most people we know come into the church during a time of crisis or change or upheaval and they're just looking for something to hold on to. We've all seen people come in those moments and they live for Jesus and their lives become blessed and then they just fade away and the problem is over. These men don't settle down when Jesus solves their problem. They double down on committing to God. They actually consider the implications of what God has done for them and they say, well, My life doesn't belong to me anymore. They're not in it for what they can get from Jesus. They're in it for Jesus. He's what they want. And if you want to know what an appropriate response is to the gospel, it's right here. They forsook all and followed him. And for us, that doesn't mean you leave everything and wander off somewhere where you don't know where you're going and start hitchhiking to the interior. What it means when it says they forsook all and followed him is it means at that moment it became Jesus and everything else. There's no longer a list of priorities that Jesus is on the top of. Jesus is on his own list. He's item one on a list of one. That's what it means when it says they forsook all and followed him. It says, like Paul says, I consider all these things rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing God. That's what happened in that moment. That's an appropriate response to the gospel. It's not even possible to honestly say that we're saved when Jesus is number three on the list and just say, you know, he'll work his way up as I grow in Christ. That's not what we see here. They forsook all, everything, and followed him. And I always want to be as clear as I can about what the gospel is and what it means to be saved. In your life, is following Jesus a burden? Let me just be honest and suggest that you may have forgotten what Jesus has done for you. It happens to me too. In your life, are you characterized by obedience to Jesus? Or are you trying to ignore some instructions and substitute them with others? If you love Jesus, you'll obey his commands, Period. You know, as a pastor, what troubles me more than anything is what the Bible says about how many people believe they're saved and aren't. That troubles me so much as a pastor because what I hate is the thought that one day there might be someone from my church standing before God and God says, I never knew you. And they look at me and say, I I thought I was good. You made me believe I was good. Here's what I know. I know that we all want to hear, you're good. Just keep doing what you're doing. Everything about you is awesome. Don't change a thing. I want to hear that. Love that. But the truth is even better. It's even better to know the truth. And so if I shared all the positive things all the time, we'd probably have a bigger church. But I want to please God. I want to please God more than anything. So I just want to share a few things from a book I'm writing called How Not to Grow Your Church. That's, just, that's a joke. But, uh, you know, I, I don't get to see into all of your lives on a detailed basis. Some of you I, I only know on a Sunday morning and from our, our conversations here. Um, and that's all I have to go on. But, but as a church, when we talk about things like, hey, we just need somebody to serve once a month. And there's, Almost no response from most people, even people who come here every week or or in the area of giving, seeing people that I know love God that are here every week but aren't obeying the word of God when it comes to the area of giving. It terrifies me. It terrifies me. I'm going to be honest with you. It, It doesn't terrify me because we have bills and because I need more volunteers to make my life easier. It terrifies me because if we're not following God, in those basic areas at church, what's going on in the rest of our lives? It terrifies me. I really hope you're hearing my heart. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the number of volunteer hours you do. 
What I care about is, are you deceiving yourself into believing that you have a life that is fully submitted to God and you don't? That terrifies me, keeps me up at night, motivates me to pray for myself and for you. And I want to bring that up because I just want to ask you, are you deceiving yourself? Jesus said, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Are we overwhelmed by our need for a Savior? Are we overwhelmed with gratitude toward Jesus? Have we forsaken all to follow him? If none of that is true or has ever been true in your life, you might need to ask, are are you saved? Is there anything about your salvation experience that lines up with what we see in the Bible? Is there anything? Write this down. Following Jesus means that he becomes everything. He becomes everything. Hear me on this. That's the only standard the Bible gives. That's the only standard. It's the only option. It's the only model. The Bible doesn't give us an example of casual Christians and super committed Christians. There's only disciples. There's only disciples who are ready to die for Jesus. There's no tiers. There's no levels. We don't have badges. We don't have stripes. We don't have rankings. We are all disciples. That's it. The lukewarm church, the casual Christian, which, which we sometimes think we can be, yeah, that's the Christian in Revelation 3 that Jesus vomits out of his mouth. Right? I don't think Jesus is okay with that. It's the vomiting that tips you off. That's how you know. The only standard we see in the Bible is forsaking all to follow Jesus. And the reason for that, if you were to ask Jesus, why, why is your standard so high? Let me tell you what Jesus would say. Because I'm worth it. That's what he'd say. Because I'm worth it. There's nothing less that I deserve. I'm worth it. You know, there's an uncanny resemblance between Peter's words and the words of Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. Both men were confronted with the presence of the living God. And I just want to read this to you from Isaiah 6. I'm going to read all of Isaiah 6 to you. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. These are just heavenly creatures. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And when God gives someone a vision, it's not like a daydream. It's like you're there. It's like you're there. It's like you've been taken somewhere completely different. Isaiah sees God in his glory in heaven, and he has a reaction that's very similar to Peter's. Verse 5 of Isaiah 6. So I said, Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and then just... As Jesus calmed Peter's fears, one of the seraphim calms Isaiah's fears. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Notice that the solution to the imminent destruction of Isaiah in the presence of God is the removal of sin. The very thing Jesus came to do for Peter and for you and for me. And just as Jesus commissions the disciples to become his messengers, the Lord commissions Isaiah. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? This is a little Trinity reference for you. Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And that's really where the similarities end because we love to quote that. Here am I. Send me. Let me tell you about the awesome mission Isaiah got. This is Isaiah's mission. Go tell the people, says God, I've had enough. I'm done. I'm pouring out my wrath and judgment on them. By the time I'm done, there'll only be a tenth of them left. 
go build a ministry with that platform, right? Nobody's tuning in for that. It's the hour of discouragement and wrath and judgment with me, Isaiah the prophet. Welcome to the show today. You know, we've lost several viewers as the prophecy has begun to be, become fulfilled. Got about one in ten watching the show at this point. So <laughs> that's what he gets. And nobody will even listen to him. Nobody even listens to him. Nobody repents. That's the ministry Isaiah gets. We love that in the church, right? Here I am, send me. Not if it's that mission. Anything else? How about China? I hear China's, you know, let's go to China. This is the, what he gets. God says this to Isaiah, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Nobody's amening that message. Nobody. Get this, Isaiah was sent to proclaim the judgment of God on his people. That's the message he had. Jesus described his gospel as good news. This is the last point on your outline. The gospel is good news because the judgment of God on us has instead been poured out on Jesus. That's the good news. It's the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. The judgment of God on us has instead been poured out on Jesus. And so in closing, I just want to share this. The first question is, are, are you saved? Have you become aware of your hopeless position without Jesus? Or is your relationship with God just based on a desire to become a better person? Have you had that moment when you've just realized there's, there's a gulf between me and God that I cannot mend and been overwhelmed by that reality? Are you aware of how desperately you need Jesus? Secondly, are you loving Jesus by obeying him? Are, are you walking by faith, not denying the reality of the situation, but recognizing that a word from Jesus supersedes even the realities of that situation? Are you acting without a word from God and wondering why it's not working out? Or are you ignoring a word that God has spoken and wondering why it's not working out? If so, do business with God this morning and repent. Here's why I love the word repent, because repent means change. Repent doesn't mean be sorry. Repent means change. So the reality is, for many of us, you can't repent this morning, because repentance is actually change. You'll be repenting when you change, when you do the thing that God is asking you to do, when you stop doing the thing that he's asking you to stop doing when you take the step of faith in obedience to the word that he's spoken to you, that'll be repentance. But today you can resolve in your heart to do that as soon as possible. And then the last thing I just want to ask is, are you giving the Father room to speak into your life? Is your relationship with God work? Or is it, or is it everything? The reality is we could, we could preach sermon after sermon with 10 steps you need to do three principles you need to apply. There's only one principle you need to apply. Have a relationship with the Father. That's it. That's it. That's the one thing. If you have a relationship with the Father, everything you need to change, he'll bring to your attention. Everything. Everywhere you need to grow, he will empower you to grow. The wisdom you need, he will give it to you. The decision-making you need, he will guide you through it. He will bless you in it. Do one thing. Have a relationship with the Father and know, know that there is nothing else that can be substituted in place of that. No amount of activity, no amount of activity will constitute a relationship with God. I love my kids. And if they did every chore we have in our house and said, I'm going to do this instead of spending time with you, none of it would make up for that because I want to be with them. They're who I love. That's why God says, he, he says, listen, I, I'm not interested in your activity. I'm interested in you. I'm interested in you. 
you. A God who lacks nothing, who needs nothing, called us his treasure. Called us his treasure. A relationship with him is everything. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first thing I always want to do is just give an opportunity. If there's anyone in here who would say, you know, based on what I've just heard, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure I belong to God. I'm not sure that I have ever forsaken all to follow him. I'm not sure that he's number one on a list of one. But I know that I want him to be. And today I'm prepared to do that. I have counted the cost. I'm not doing it lightly. But I want to give my life to Jesus. Because he's given his life to me. If that's you and for the first time today, you want to respond to the gospel and give your life to God. I don't want to embarrass you. Would you just raise your hand so I can see you? This is your opportunity. Thank you. And then let's, just the rest of us, consider the questions that the word of God has brought to our attention today. Just even as I, w- I, I was studying, man, I, I wept while I was studying God's word this week uh, because I was so overwhelmed by Peter's response. He's seeing God move radically in his life, but he, he considers the implications of what God is doing and he is overwhelmed by the fact that this is God. This is God. Right in front of him. Involved in his job, in his work, in his daily life. This is God. Right here. And the busyness of life just robs us of that awe again and again and again. And sometimes we just need to stop and be in awe of what God has done for us, what we have in Him. And so spend some time doing business with God. If you need to repent, repent. Don't deceive yourself. If you need to remember what Jesus has done for you, go back and get communion. Be reminded of what he's done for you. And just allow the Holy Spirit to put everything back into perspective. That the things we call sacrifices for him are are really not even sacrifices. They're to our gain. They're to our benefit. But uh, I just believe the Holy Spirit's guiding each of us right now in the way that we need to go.